Welcome, everybody, to episode 19 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm joined again, as always, this week by my colleague Bill Roggio. Bill? Hi, everyone. Uh, we are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and we've been running FDD's Long War Journal for more than 12 years now. I always stumble on that. I don't know why. I don't even know exactly how long we've been doing this, but it's been a long time. And throughout that entire time, of course, we started off by covering Al-Qaeda and, and America's wars in response to the 9-11 attacks and the Iraq War and, and related issues. And this week, we thought maybe we'd sort of do a brief survey of where Al-Qaeda stands in the year 2020. And it's an interesting, complicated question. Uh, you know, I sat down, Bill, to prepare for this week's episode, and I wanted to do, you know, sometimes we do these show notes where we try and outline what we're going to say, try and rein in our, all of our thoughts on this stuff. Um, and, I, you know, the problem I have with this topic is it's such a big topic that basically we could record probably 10 episodes of the podcast on this, and I still probably wouldn't say or get to everything we wanted to say or get to. So where is Al-Qaeda in 2020, and where are they doing? Well, you know, the, the first thing you confront when you start to answer this question is that um, there's still not a, a, a common definition or, or um, ex- widely accepted definition of what Al-Qaeda actually is or how it's structured, how it functions. And we're going to get into that a little bit in terms of going through all this. But let's start from the top with the man at the top. In fact, the, the number one Al-Qaeda guy in the plan, Ayman al-Zawahiri. He's still in the game. He's still alive. According to General McKenzie, the CENTCOM commander, he's in eastern Afghanistan, um, he still has followers across multiple countries, uh, multiple groups that are part of the Al-Qaeda sort of hydra are, are, are loyal to him, openly loyal to him. Um, you know, and one of the things, Bill, you and I talk about a lot is, um, or have in the past, is that, you know, there's this, sort of this reflexive um, desire to dismiss Al-Wahiri and say that he's sort of, you know, he lacks the charisma of Osama bin Laden, so therefore he's an ineffectual leader. And of course, he had problems with ISIS and the rise of ISIS, and he's had other management problems through the years for sure. But one of the things about Ayman al-Zawahiri deserves a little bit of credit for, first and foremost, is he survived all these years, right? I mean, I, I don't know if you could have, Bill, do you think you could have survived the massive manhunt for him? I mean, if you think about it, he was in jail, imprisoned by the Egyptians in the 80s. He did, briefly detained by the Russians in the 90s. But he's had multiple governments gunning for him, chiefly the United States of America, uh, for many years now, decades. And he's still in the game. The old man, the old Egyptian is still in the game. Yeah, I, I think that speaks uh, to Al Qaeda's organization. It's um, it's uh, survivability. I mean, look, it took us ten years to kill Osama bin Laden. It wound up he, of course, was sheltering in a compound in uh, outside of Pakistan's, basically with their version of West Point in Abbottabad. And where is Al Hiri today? Well, the U.S. military again, as you said, seems to think he's in Eastern Afghanistan. Look, the U.S. military has a strong, has a not not necessarily a strong footprint in Afghanistan, but a strong, but a strong enough footprint that if it wanted to organize and go after him, it could. Um, it could also pull in resources from outside to do so. And yet, if the U.S. military believes that he's in Eastern Afghanistan, they're unable to get him. And I think that speaks to, you know, again, Al Qaeda has a network here that is able to provide security and not just survive. But he's able to manage the organization. Say, you know, you would mention he's criticized for allowing these, you know, the, the schism with the Islamic State. Um, the, look, Zawahiri actually ejected the Islamic State from, from Al-Qaeda. Um, but he still commands um, respect from senior jihadists, Al-Qaeda's branches, 
still exist and they still report to him and provide money and support for Al-Qaeda's Central Command. And it, it is amazing that 19 plus years after 9-11, Al-Qaeda, who started out as Al-Qaeda's number two and is now Al-Qaeda's number one, he's still out there. You know, there's this idea that um, I've seen in different places that, you know, basically the Egyptian Islamic Jihad wasn't really part of Al-Qaeda until 2001. There are different dates for the, the, the merger <laughs> between between Zawahiri's outfit and bin Laden's outfit. I just, I've always been puzzled by this because if you go back through the history of this and you go through the, the 9-11 Commission report, or you go through district court records, you go through various different primary source accounts, it's clear that Zawahiri was joined at the hip with bin Laden very early on and that it was his Egyptian Islamic Jihad operatives that really laid the groundwork and helped plan, with assistance from Hezbollah and Iran, by the way, for the 1998 U.S. embassy bombings, which were the biggest attack by by Al-Qaeda uh, before 9-11, the most devastating attack. And you could see that type of cooperation throughout the 1990s. Whenever you date the formal merger of the EIJ with Al-Qaeda, it's clear that Zawahiri and his men were deeply in bed with Al-Qaeda and bin Laden uh, and were part of it. And I always compare it to sort of like the ExxonMobil merger, you know? I mean, if, if you look at it, you know, it's like somebody saying, well, mobile wasn't really part of ExxonMobil until it became ExxonMobil. Well, mobile was always mobile, you know? And, um, you know, yeah, maybe the formal merger was when they became one and they, they, they're officially joined, you know, joined banners under the same name. But behind the scenes, you know, you know, Egyptian Islamic Jihad, Zawahiri, they were always EIJ. They were always anti-American terrorists going way back in time. And they were part of this Al-Qaeda merger very early on, even if it was unannounced. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is part of the what we've just called the uh, disconnect the dots uh, paradigm that we constantly have to deal with. Like, what is the difference between Egyptian Islamic Jihad prior to a formal merger than after, as you explained, I think the, the you know, the ExxonMobil example you give is absolutely perfect. It, they were fellow travelers in this case. And, and I guess my analogy look, there is it's like, it's like, it's not like mobile was not in the oil business before it became part yeah, of ExxonMobil, exactly. right? You know, I mean, right. maybe there wasn't cooperation between Exxon and mobile before they became ExxonMobil, but in this case there was, right? I mean, EIJ and Al-Qaeda were, were joined very early on in all this. I'm trying to think back to the earliest pictures of where Bin Laden and Zawahiri are, fo are, are photographed together, right? I mean, can it, it has to span back to the early 1990s, am I correct? I mean, and Al-Qaeda even talks about how those two traveled together during the jihad uh, or against the, you know, yeah, the jihad against the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. Now, maybe that's... Um, Maybe that's a fiction created by Al-Qaeda, but that's certainly the impression that they want to give. You know, and I, I mentioned McKenzie saying that Zawahiri is in eastern Afghanistan. We think that's, that's just such a curious thing for him to say, isn't it? Because it, it is. Why do you say it? I mean, you know, if you know he's there, why aren't you going after him? If, if, you, can't go, if you can't go after him, right, what does that mean? You know, and, um, you know, why are you letting him know that you know where he is? You know, and then, you know, who, and who, who's harboring him there? Who's he working with? Most likely the Akhanis, of course, and other Taliban groups. Uh, you know, but the point is, is that you, when you look at that, you know, it's just a very strange thing to say, well, we think he's in eastern Afghanistan, but what? You know, there's not a, you're not redoubling your effort to go get him. There was there was no punchline. I, I, you think, if you go back in time, like think back to like 2002, imagine a major U.S. military commander official or U.S. official saying, oh, we know Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri are in Pakistan or wherever, you know. OK, um, and the punchline is what? I mean, people be like, so what are you going to do about it? 
And yet this was put out there and there was outside of us, nobody said, well, what are you going to do about it? Right. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, we're just going to let them exist there now as we leave. It's like we close the U.S. has closed five military bases in Afghanistan as part of this this uh, deal with the Taliban or supposedly part of the deal with the Taliban. The U.S., by all indications, is leaving Afghanistan. And you're what? You're not going to get him on the way out or what's the deal? Yeah, that's exactly right, Tom. I mean, we close five U.S. military bases. We pull 4,000 troops out as part of that 135-day deadline of the deal with the Taliban. Shouldn't we be redoubling efforts, sending, maybe keeping those troops inside Afghanistan to help hunt for Zawahiri if we really do believe that he's in eastern Afghanistan? I mean, look, there are one or two very likely things going on here. Either, you know, they don't want to go after him in, in eastern Afghanistan, where this is the the ultimate expression of, of impotence, in my my opinion. They are unable to get him because they're so beholden to a deal with the Taliban that if you get Zawahiri in eastern Afghanistan, then it really brings that entire deal crashing down because, of course, he's going to be sheltering with the Taliban, with the Haqqanis, as you note, as you note very likely. And, um, yeah, this is... Why I don't even understand why McKenzie would act would say that if either of those two things were true. So right, so let's let's go from there. Let's go from Zawahiri is presumably in eastern Afghanistan. Let's let's work our way inside out when talking about Al Qaeda twenty twenty. So inside being Afghanistan and where this all really started. Um, and I think listeners of our podcast, people who have read us, they know our pessimistic take on all this. They know our skepticism, our criticism of the Taliban deal. So they know what we think about all that. And we don't want to repeat all those arguments here. But, you know, what does Al-Qaeda look like in Afghanistan right now? I mean, there are different assessments of how many fighters they have in Afghanistan. But, you know, a common assessment is anywhere from 200 to 600 uh, fighters for Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent and other Al-Qaeda fighters. You and I have long argued, right, Bill, that we don't actually know how many fighters they have in Afghanistan. They clearly are there. We just don't know how many they have. And and any of these assessments are probably missing all sorts of uh, components to try and tally that all up to really figure that out. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I don't want to get into the whole 50 to 100 estimate that the controversy that was given for six uh, straight years by during the Obama and Just as background, the U.S. military and the intelligence community said there were only 50 to 100 al-Qaeda guys in Afghanistan from 2010 to basically sometime in 2016. We argued that wasn't true based on what NATO and the U.S. military itself was saying in terms of the reporting on operational raids. But this was a sticky assessment that just held and just they couldn't get off it. They finally got off it after they raided the U.S. military and Afghan forces raided these massive, these two massive training camps in the Shorabas district of Kandahar. Um, they then only basically increased the estimate by the capacity of those camps to say that this is actually was bigger than 50 to 100. But you and I know, we've argued, there's not, never been a real comprehensive assessment or hasn't been in quite some time to actually look at what is the full extent, extent of Al-Qaeda's network inside Afghanistan look like. Yeah. And, and you know, that, that, that 50 to 100 estimate maintained, being maintained for almost six years until it was forced to be revised, to me just says that, like you said, there's no serious effort to determine what Al-Qaeda what al-Qaeda's strength inside Afghanistan was. And and as we've noted before, the, the biases that exist towards, well, if it's not Arab, it's not al-Qaeda, or if it's not North African, it's not al-Qaeda. Well, I have a feeling, and I've heard this uh, from some individuals, that 
there is a serious discounting of Al-Qaeda when it comes to its Afghan, Pakistani, and Central Asian components. So, yeah, I don't think we really know. And I, I think the, I suspect any estimate that's giving is uh, severely estimating Al-Qaeda's strength. Uh, underestimating, yeah. It's really underestimating. underestimating yes. Yeah. Um, Al-Qaeda's strength in Afghanistan. And I think uh, that the, uh, the facts and history uh, bears that out. And by the way, we don't think that they're going to get this right on the way out the door. So this isn't no, absolutely it's not, not. not an argument for anything. Other, it's more of an epistemological observation. Uh, um, but, you know, when you talk about the other groups from Central Asia, in other words, you're talking about like the Turkestan Islamic Party, of course, which is filled with Uyghurs. You have, um, you know, the Uzbek groups, the, the reconstituted portions of the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, which sort of was reconfigured and is folded under the Taliban's banner, the IJU, Islamic Jihad Union. You have Tajiks that are, are jihadis. You have the Pakistan, various Pakistani groups have contributed to the cause that are, many of them which are allied with Al-Qaeda or are now part of Al-Qaeda, sort of reconstituted under Al-Qaeda and the Indian subcontinent. You basically have a, for all these different constituencies or, or component parts of what Al-Qaeda would look like that if you were actually trying to figure out what Al-Qaeda is in any one of these years, you'd be adding this all up and saying, this is these are this is how this all works. And basically what we're saying is nobody's been doing the addition, right? Nobody's pulled yeah. out the calculator and say A plus, you know, one plus two plus three equals, you know, nobody's been doing that. Yeah. For instance, look, look at the Turkestan Islamic Party. It's it's Amir served as the head at one point in time, and then he, until he was injured, served as the head of Al-Qaeda's operations chief for Afghanistan, Pakistan, a military commander, basically. He's said to be on Al-Qaeda's one of Al-Qaeda's shoras. So what does that make the head of the TIP, Turkestan Islamic Party, and his followers? Are they a distinct group or are they part of Al-Qaeda? And that's what these are some of the things that, as you said, are not being tallied. Yeah, not being tallied. So let's go. So in Afghanistan, of course, part of the reason why this has worked for Al-Qaeda is they're fighting under the Taliban's banner. And as we sit here, we're recording this in July the U.S. has pitched this idea that the Taliban's finally going to betray Al-Qaeda. And again, as you, if you've listened to us, you know, we don't, we haven't seen any evidence of that. And I'm, we're both willing to change our minds the minute we're presented with firm evidence that there's something to change our minds about. Uh, but until we see that evidence, forget it. You know, I mean, you, you got to show us something concrete and we haven't seen anything concrete. And so basically, the Al-Qaeda figured out a long time ago that if it just fights under the Taliban's banner, uh, clandestinely and quietly and doesn't announce everything it's doing, there's going to be a large uh, incentive to pretend that they're not even there. And we're sort of seeing yeah. the fruits of that strategy now. And that's very different from ISIS, of course, which, you know, if they have a porta potty set up somewhere in Kunar, they're claiming their province is active and that they're, you know, going at it when, when basically they're willing to announce just about everything, you know. Uh, whereas Al Qaeda doesn't very rarely announces actual operations in Afghanistan, even though we know they're there from various reasons. And look, just to remind our listeners, it's been about five months since the U.S. signed that deal with the Taliban. And Tom, how many raids have been reported by the Taliban against Al Qaeda? Zip, zero. Okay. And how many, ta- how, many time, how many times has the Taliban even admitted that Al Qaeda is in Afghanistan? Yeah. As a matter of they, fact, act- it says that it actively deny target yeah. Al Qaeda because yeah. it doesn't, doesn't exist, exist inside well, of Afghanistan. Poof, we're on. problem solved, right? Yeah, uh, it's, it, it reminds me of the old George Costanza line. Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. You know, that's basically, you know, basically, and basically, that's the, yeah, people in the State Department now and elsewhere that are willing to believe the lie, you know. Um, so, and it, so let's go from there. So now we got Afghanistan. We can go on about all the constituent parts. 
you know, the recent, you know, UN reporting has suggested that the Al Qaeda is actually clandestinely operating in at least 12 different provinces. You and I think it's probably even more than that, of course. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, we've documented their historical footprint there. And one of the, one of the reasons why Al Qaeda has been able to survive this war has been its strong alliance and relationship with the Akhani's, the Akhani network. And this is, this is really the Akhani's, you know, Jalaluddin and Akhani was one of Osama bin Laden's earliest benefactors. His son, Sir Judin Akhani, has been an Al-Qaeda guy all along. And really, the Akhani's incubated Al-Qaeda in eastern Afghanistan originally and have remained allied with Al-Qaeda both during the Pakistan uh, years where they were sort of mostly held up in, East, in, in northern Pakistan together where the Akhani's control their strongholds, but you know, also throughout this entire time in Afghanistan. And this is one of those, those sort of strategic uh, points of strength for Al-Qaeda that's been underestimated by the U.S. government. In fact, you can see in, in the Defense Department's reporting, they say stuff like, well, there's, no, there's nothing strategic to the Taliban-Al-Qaeda relationship. I say to that, excuse me, I can think of nothing more strategic to Al-Qaeda than its relationship with the Taliban, in particular the Akhani's. And Bill, you were you were all over the Akhani's early on, and what what that meant for all this. Yeah, I, I I don't understand that. You know, look, we invade Afghanistan and keep troops there for 19 years because of the Taliban Al Qaeda relationship, which led to the attacks, the 9/11 attacks, and other horrific attacks uh, by Al Qaeda since then. Which and the then, Taliban yeah. blames on us, by the way. Remember, they're still exactly. issuing statements and videos blaming the U.S. for 9-11 and other attacks. You know, our counterterrorism. Yeah, right. We deserved Taliban. it, basically, yeah. is what the Taliban... It's a, right. a slap on the dark faces of the United States, is what the Taliban will say. Um, so they're rubbing in our faces, even as we're, we're genuflecting, as we're, we're prostrating ourselves to them. Um, yeah, it, it, there's nothing could be more important, as you stated, Tom. This is where... this A, it's where it all began, and B... This is if Zawahiri is operating in eastern Afghanistan, as you noted, it's highly likely, if not certain, that he is doing so with the support of the Haqqani network. And the Haqqanis are not just some criminal group as general that can be that can be, be negotiated, which the General Flynn long ago stated, I believe that was in 2009. And he backed um, off that, that after I think we. Yeah, he did. He did. We had a little tip for tap with his staff and others. Yeah, about that. Yeah. Yep. But, um, you know, this is the sort of thing that we've heard over time about the Haqqanis. And yet it, the, the Haqqani network is listed as a terrorist organization. And it's many of its leaders are listed as specially designated global terrorists because of their direct support for Al Qaeda. And lest we forget, Siraj Akhani isn't just the leader of the Akhani network. He's one of two deputy mayors for the Taliban. This relationship could not be any more strategic. And any claim to the contrary is just merely an attempt to downplay or absolve the Taliban for its ties. With and it's just a good example of how the U.S. lost its way in all this, right? I mean, basically, yeah. one of our key points is that the U.S. hasn't really understood this enemy in years, even as American service members have been asked to fight and die in this war. And the U.S., uh, leadership has been completely confused or, or befuddled about all this. It really con- has a real muddled uh, vision of the enemy if, uh, in Afghanistan. And so that's one of the big problems. So that's Afghanistan. We can go on about that. You know, I think we we both think that the, the Al-Qaeda has a more extensive presence, obviously, and have argued than, than a lot of the common assessments or public assessments of this. But let's go to Pakistan. And boy, you know, I've been thinking about Pakistan a lot recently in all this because, um, you know, you could see there was this sort of turnabout in, in the Trump administration where in 2017, the, the policy was let's get tough on Pakistan. Let's call out its its sponsorship and harboring of the Taliban and other anti-American terrorists. 
Um, and went from that to now where the U.S. State Department and military are portraying the Pakistan as our peace partners and, you know, as if they're doing something that's, you know, in, in the interest of peace in, in, in Afghanistan, um, even though they've never turned on the Akhanis or any of the senior Taliban leadership, including those that are in bed with uh, Al-Qaeda. We've, we've talked about that in previous episodes of the podcast, but here's, here's the open question, Bill, and what, what are your thoughts on this? What does Al-Qaeda look like in Pakistan today? You have the Pakistani Taliban, which is clearly part of the Al-Qaeda orbit, but, you know, I I, I gotta be worried that the, the actual Al Qaeda network is is more uh, is deeper than we know in Pakistan, and probably in more lo- locations than we know in Pakistan. And is it isn't this a black box that we're going to be dealing with going forward? And isn't that as the U.S. leaves the region, isn't that black box going to get even darker? Yeah, absolutely. It's the the correct way to put it. It's it's become more and more of a black box as the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan threat to the Pakistani state has decreased. And I think Al-Qaeda's strength is actually growing because of that. So now, and again, I don't want to get all, I'm not going to spend a long time discussing the good versus bad Taliban paradigm, but basically it's this. There are what the Pakistani states, and this is their own words, called good Taliban. Those are certain Taliban groups that fights in Afghanistan and, and will back the Pakistani government up against India. And this could also include groups like Pakistani state-sponsored terror groups like Lashkari Taiba, Jaish Muhammad, and I could go on and on with the names. And then the bad Taliban is going to be groups like uh, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, Islamic Jihad Union, which have carried out attacks against the Pakistani state. The bad Taliban, of course, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan was responsible for taking over large areas of the federally administrated tribal areas, which are used to be known as the federally administrated tribal areas, which are North and South Waziristan and five other. Now they're all districts. And, and, and that was in what was called the Northwest Frontier Province, which is now Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. They... Um, the, the problem with this paradigm, of course, is that the, the bad Taliban is supported by the good Taliban. And we get to the, what you, Tom, calls the or coined the term wheel of jihad. So the bad Taliban is supported by the good Taliban, which is supported by the Pakistani state. And the bad Taliban attacks the Pakistani state. Now, the operations of the bad Taliban or the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan in particular, have um, they've tapered off over the last several years as the Pakistani state has... Um, sort of gotten attempted to uh, whittle them back. It doesn't mean they're not still conducting attacks. As a matter of fact, this morning I was just doing some research and looking at attacks in the tribal areas and they're happening. It's just, you're not seeing the reports um, on them. They're mainly attacks against the military, military patrols and things of that nature. But I'm also seeing reports of where the Pakistani state is now um, turning over security in the tribe, in these former tribal areas again to the what they called these peace councils or peace committees this is this this is what led to the rise of the movement oh, of the Taliban deja, deja vu all over again huh yeah I mean, yeah i'm yeah. it's funny tom i just ran across the these couple of these reports this morning and um was was going yeah this is what i think is happening and oh you know but the fact that the, you don't have this active insurgency against the the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan actually allows groups like al qaeda to operate under the covers because now the, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan isn't such a threat to the Pakistani state. It's more of a localized threat in, in particular remote areas of Pakistan and less so against when it was marching and on basically on the back, it was operating and controlling territory in Buner, which was 60 miles from the Pakistani um, capital of Islamabad back in, I think that was 2000 by 2009 that was going on. Um, and that's what triggered the Pakistani military to finally take on the bad Taliban. So, 
you know, we've seen reports over the years where the, um, I believe one of them was even in the Washington Post where it estimated the Taliban had thousands, or I'm sorry, Al Qaeda had thousands of fighters. A thousand, I think a thousand in Karachi, yeah, a thousand in Karachi. Karachi and, and, but we also, we know historical locations for Al Qaeda inside it. They're in Peshawar, they're in Quetta, they're in, you know, a host of countries where we've rounded up. I'll, you know, several key Al Qaeda leaders. You know, in let's, the let's, early get, let's get let's, let's get into that a little bit more. But I got I got to uh, take a moment here, pause on the uh, phrase you just introduced into our sort of uh, dictionary now on this, which is the under the covers, because that immediately leads to me to another new episode we have to do, which is sort of you know, you know, Al Qaeda under the covers, a sultry night in a guest house in Peshawar <laughs> or something. You know, I mean, I basically, you know, that's sort of where my mind goes with that, because uh, you know. And, and so, you know, when it comes to under the covers, I mean, you know, you had as part of this campaign, I mean, the, the Trump administration, I, I think it was the Trump administration, right, designated the Ganj Madrasa or, or Sheikh yes. Amanullah in Peshawar, right? And so we, Tom, I think that was under the, I think that was under the Obama administration. Yeah, maybe it was. I, who, who cares? The bottom line is the U.S. Yeah. knows that this guy is running this madrasa, which is in Al Qaeda's yeah. mm-hmm. camp, right? And there's there's other there's other facilities like that throughout. Pakistan, and we, we don't really have a full public accounting of any of this, right? There's not any effort to say, here's what this, this total picture looks like. And there's another issue there, too, which is we talk about this, we often talk about this alphabet soup of Pakistani jihadist groups, many of which are on the wheel of jihad, all of which are on the wheel of jihad. They either receive direct sponsorship from the Pakistani state or have in the past, and, and a number of them are known to have um, alliances with Al-Qaeda or relationships with Al-Qaeda, even though we don't know the full extent of them. And so I'm thinking here, you know, you have like Jaishi Muhammad or Lashkari Taiba, Huji uh, or Harakat al Mujahideen, you know, all these groups that have been operating through the years. Now, some of them we know, as you wrote up years ago in 2014, were folded into Al Qaeda in the subcontinent, which fights on the Taliban's banner in Afghanistan, operates in Pakistan, and is exporting the jihad to Kashmir and elsewhere, standing up operations. Um, but these 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 groups, you know, we don't really even know how extensive they are in Pakistan right now. I mean, I, we don't know how what their footprint looks like, and and it's not to say that they're all that the the correlation between them and Al Qaeda is one to one. We've never argued that, but we don't really know how extensive the correlation is. We know there's some, you know, and and we know there's a, there's enough historical evidence to say, for example, that part of Lashkari Taiba has been wedded to Al Qaeda. Remember, there was that. Um, you know, Abu Faris al-Suri was that al-Qaeda veteran who showed up in, in Syria at one point working for Nusrafran as, as a spokesman. What what was his dossier? What was his biography that Jihadi said? They said, well, he helped bin Laden establish Lashkari Taiba. I was like, yeah. whoa, yeah, that's a pretty pretty amazing claim uh, to make about it. So you know that there is there is some, you know, it doesn't mean you know, there are tensions there, of course, the Pakistani state, um, you know, there is an argument within the jihadi scene in Pakistan. I've written a little bit about this, about you know the extent to which you can turn against the Pakistani state. Al Qaeda is trying to agitate to get more of the jihadis to turn against the Pakistani state in the long run, but it's all on this wheel of jihad. And I, I mean, what what's your sense today, Bill, of how extensive these groups are in Pakistan and where this all goes? I mean, we've seen some recent reporting that even the Pakistanis were um, trying to free up some cash for some of these guys. I think it was even including Afez Saeed, right? It was yes. the head of Ashkari Taiba, right? And that are our, our great allies in the Pakistani state. Thank you, guys. After all these years, for for so so wholeheartedly uh, endorsing the war on terror, um, you know, and, and all and all this stuff. I mean, how extensive is this? I mean, what what's going to be the issue going forward here? Yeah, look, I don't think things have improved any than it was, let's say, in 2010 or 2005. I actually think they're, these groups are more entrenched. Look, there's two reasons and, and it, for this black box, right? And I, I think it's, it's important to understand why we don't know what's happening. And one of them is 
the diminishing threat of the movement in the Taliban in Pakistan sort of decreased the need for the Pakistani media to get on, you know, to get to the bottom of what's going on. So it's less important to report on uh, violence attributed by the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan and who it's actually who its allies are. Um, and instead of reporting on uh, political issues with, like, say, with Imran Khan, the prime minister, and, and you know, his uh, all the things he's doing or COVID inside Pakistan. Those are if I'm a avid reader of the Pakistani press, but I've also noticed another trend. There's been enough Pakistani journalists who've reported on these jihadist issues have been murdered, um, many by the Pakistani state over the course of the last uh, two decades. Um, and I, I think the Pakistani state has been suppressing a lot of um, or discouraging a lot of the reporting inside of Pakistan on jihadist issues. Even when Pakistani soldiers are killed in North or South Waziristan, very rarely do, do these types of reports uh, wind up in the Pakistani press. And uh, I find that to be quite interesting. Those were big news stories in Pakistan in, let's say, 2008 or 2000, even 2012. And now they're, they're glossed over or even, um, so I think there might even, there's some self-censorship in the Pakistani press. Plus there's some, uh, plus a push by the Pakistani state, particularly Pakistani military and inner service intelligence directorate to, um, you know, discourage reporting on that. And, you know, given the history of Pakistan and, and the, the problems inherent with the wheel of jihad, um, and the fact, like, look, as you mentioned, I believe the, the Pakistanis uh, went to the UN to try and free up money for, I believe it was around 50 known jihadists. And you're right, Hafez Saeed was one of them. And what do we learn about that report? Hafez Saeed supposedly was convicted of terrorism finance charges, right, last year. And he should be in a jail. But what, what do we learn in that latest report? Yeah, let's oh, give him some more back money. At home. Yeah, let's give yeah, him some more money. Be, let's let's, give, a guy, give let's give some a, guy, a guy convicted on terrorism finance charges. We're going to give cash. Yeah, yeah because he needs it for expenses. But he's living at home. He's living under, quote unquote, house arrest. He's The guy's probably never spent a day in jail in his life. He His home is a hub for for Lashkari Taiba, Jaisha, uh, or Jamatu Dawa, or whatever you want to call his group today. Um, and and the, the host of... of uh, of front groups of so-called charitable fronts that he he manages. Yeah, it's giving money to Hefesi, great idea. And this is how I know that these groups are just as prevalent today and are just as strong today as they were a decade ago. Yeah, and I mean, it, you know, Hefesi is a guy who described Osama bin Laden as a martyr. He was clearly a bin Laden man, you know, when bin Laden was killed in 2011. Um, there's evidence of an overlap of part of Lashkari Taiba, of course, with Al-Qaeda going back to the Mumbai attacks. Yeah, David Headley, who did the uh, you know surveillance work for the Mumbai attacks, ends up doing surveillance also for Al-Qaeda in Denmark and elsewhere, uh, eventually imprisoned and sort of, you know, you look through his case and it speaks to the wheel of jihad. You know, basically you have you know, the Pakistani state in bed with Lashkari Taiba, which is in bed with Al-Qaeda, which creates this sort of incestuous sort of uh, jihadi scene, which, you know, leads us back to Al-Qaeda under the covers, I guess. But, uh, you know, when you look at when you look at the whole scene here in Pakistan going forward, um, you know, we've, we previously have talked about how this is one of the big failures of the post 9-11 wars. Pakistan never never really broke with uh, the Taliban, of course, never broke with the Akhanis, never gave up on this whole sort of, you know, wage and jihad is acceptable. Um, acceptable part of their policy. And, go, and we look going forward as the U.S. leaves the region, 
Um, obviously, Al Qaeda is trying to take advantage of that too by standing up forces in Kashmir. They have a small presence. We think they have a small presence in Kashmir. They do. You know, yeah. there was the. Yeah, you know, there was. It, they're not. They're not. They had Zakir Musa was their guy for a time. He was killed, and they've got other guys before him and after him. They're trying to. They're trying to basically spark a jihadi, an Al Qaeda style jihadi scene in Kashmir, which is a little bit different from a Pakistani state-sponsored scene in Kashmir. Um, we've noticed recently that. Al Qaeda has sort of rebranded its its public Urdu publication in the region to be Nawa Ghazwa Ihind, which is basically a reference to Kashmir and the Indian subcontinent and trying to export it and what they're doing. Of course, it's also filled with details about their cooperation with the Taliban on Al Qaeda Indian subcontinent. I mean, I, I I can't really forecast what's going to happen with the Kashmir scene. Uh, you know, Al Qaeda has a small footprint there. ISIS does too. I, I don't. know. What do you think about that going forward, Bill, and all of this? Yeah, and I, I think with Al Qaeda and the Islamic State's presence in in the state Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir. And by the um, way, I refer to it as Kashmir because that's how they refer to it. So you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, um, yeah. the, the it, it'll it, it it allows for a release valve for the guys, the more hardcore. If I mean, as if it's possible to be more hardcore than Jaish Muhammad or or Lashkari Taiba or Harkat al Mujahideen or any of these other groups. But some of them want to continue fighting in uh, inside of Afghanistan. And just as Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent provided a um, sort of cover and, and, and a, a release valve for Pakistani jihadists to go in and fight inside Pakistan if they didn't want to do so alongside with the Taliban, um, you know, with the actual movement of the Taliban in Pakistan or other groups, they were able to join AQIS and fight in Afghanistan and still are able to today. I think some of the, the you know, because what the Pakistani state does is it'll dial up the pressure and turn it down inside Kashmir, depending on, you know, problems that it, it, it receives from sponsoring terrorist attacks inside of India, right? So if the heat gets too much, if there's too much inter- international pressure, the Pakistani government will be like, Lashkari Taiba, Jaysh Muhammad, look, let's let's dial this back. If you want to fight, go fight in Afghanistan. Well, some of these guys don't want to do that. And so what they'll do is they'll fight with inside of Al-Qaeda. So I think there'll always be a place for them. Um, but this, and, and also these are some of these individuals really resent, dislike the, the Pakistani state control of their jihad inside of Kashmir. Um, and that's the so, Al Qaeda argument. The Al Qaeda argument is, you know, is. Al Qaeda has been explicitly, uh, rhetorically attacking the Pakistani state to say, you know, if you're beholden to the Pakistani state in Kashmir, you're doing, we're doing jihad wrong, come our way. Yeah. And yet it, Al Qaeda recognizes that having groups like Lashkar Taiba and Jaysh Muhammad and Harkat Mujahideen and Huji and all these other groups help their cause. They're practical enough to understand that these groups receiving the state support that they do um, helps their cause as well because they rely on all of these terror groups and the Afghan Taliban, which of course is supported by the Pakistani state in order for them to stick around. So it gives them, it sort of gives everyone in the region an out to continue fighting using different modes. So long story, you know, long way of putting it, I think there'll always be a place for it, but I think there'll also be a place for the Pakistan supported jihadists as well as the outlier, which is the Islamic state for, for them all to operate inside of India. By the way, we, we know that these groups, in particular Lashkari Taiba, but others as well, um, Huji, whom they've all had a footprint in Afghanistan. And Bill, have you seen anything from the Taliban admitting that these groups have a footprint in Afghanistan as a result of the February 29th deal with the State Department? Have you seen one word saying, hey, oh, by the way, these groups are all here fighting alongside us? 
Not at all. And what, you know, as we mentioned earlier, Al Qaeda itself is um, stating that it's impossible for them to do anything about Al Qaeda inside Afghanistan because Al Qaeda doesn't exist in Afghanistan. And it's also made a broad statement, more broader statement saying that about um, the, any terrorist, any foreign terrorist. This came after the, the, the Afghan Taliban said this after a UN report said that up to, uh, or an estimated 5,000, 5,500 Pakistani jihadists alone were fighting inside Afghanistan. Some of those are part of the, many of them are part of the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, but a number of those, they, they estimated as somewhere around 800 were split between, uh, between uh, Jaish Muhammad and, and Lashkari Taiba. And now uh, the other, you know, the other alphabet of soup of uh, Pakistani terrorists um, are operating. And we know that, look, the State Department in a designation noted that Harkat al-Mujuddin, this was back in, I believe, in 2015 or 16, was operating training camps um, inside of Afghanistan. I inquired about that um, uh, probably about a half a year ago, and they said that they believe those camps are still active. So, you know, this is this is what's going on in the region. And by the way, it was a, a Harakat al-Mujuddin was implicated in bin Laden's support network in Pakistan, in Abbottabad, where his yep. courier was known to be in touch from his cell phone, in touch with Hume guys. Uh, which we know there's there's a whole relationship there that goes back many years, so it's not surprising. But you know this is this is why the wheel of jihad matters. Let's talk about a little bit about the other countries in the region. So India, you had the Mumbai attacks in 2008. You have periodic attempts to attack in India through the years since then. Um, you know what is that scene going to look like going forward? I mean, obviously they have the to worry about the Kashmiri jihadis and others. Uh, I'm, I'm curious as to what, I don't know what the Indians think the extent of these international or global jihadist footprint in India itself is. Um, you know, there's certainly some there, but I'm not really sure ex- exactly how extensive it is. you have any idea on that, Bill? No, it, it's it's very difficult to judge. I know the Indians are Is that another black concerned. box? Is that yeah, another black box? Sort of. The, the Indians' primary concern are the Pakistani state-sponsored jihadist groups. Um, they do... How they they are concerned about the Islamic State and they are concerned about Al Qaeda, but they view those two groups on in the lens of being supported by the state of Pakistan. In some ways, they're right, given that Pakistan has allowed these groups to um, uh, survive and thrive merely by supporting the Pakistani state-sponsored groups. Um, look, I know Indian intelligence um, officials that'll tell you that they believe that the the Islamic State Khorasan provinces directly supported by the Pakistani military and intelligence services. I haven't seen evidence of this. I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it might have been encouraged or um, supported by individuals within it. But I think the Islamic State, you know, itself really goes against the 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 the. Uh, Pakistani establishments uh, su- network that it supported up, like because it's against the the Afghan Taliban. Yeah, it's so openly opposed to the Taliban groups. and the Khanis. Yeah, and so there's been some allegations. Problems. There are a bunch of al- there are a bunch of allegations that ISIS in the region has been marionetted by others. You know, been puppeteered by others. Sure. You know, even uh, the United which, States. So. Right, right. I mean, you know, the, sometimes I mean, look, a lot of these these matters are murky. There could be, you know, the UN even had reporting that Khanis were clandestinely sponsoring ISIS claimed attacks because they, they just didn't want them to claim them as their own. 
is anything possible? Sure. But of course it all comes down to whether or not you can actually see you and I can see evidence of it. And we don't, right. we're not aware of any evidence of it, you know, but it's always convenient for everybody to, to claim that ISIS is puppeteered by others. Right. I mean, it's the same thing in Syria where it was all, so according to some ideologues, it was all a function of Assad, right? No, it wasn't, you know, or yeah. in Iraq, it's a function of this or that. And in all these places, it, it, it sort of takes away the agency from the group and doesn't give them credit or give them their due as their own independent organization, you know? Look, I wouldn't be surprised if the Haqqani network was sort of looking the other way while the Islamic State was conducting some activities and conducting attacks that it doesn't want hung on its own on itself that helped destabilize the Afghan government. That in some sense, some ways makes sense. I need to see evidence of it in order to believe. And, and, and on the other hand, we know the Haqqanis and the Taliban and Al Qaeda, by the way, are leading the fight against the ISIS in eastern Afghanistan or have clashed with them exactly. numerous times. So so it's all it's all a mess. But so I, I'm just curious about in, the Indian scene going forward. I, I feel like this is one of those countries and one of these scenes where that story isn't fully written yet, you know, it, and, it's and there's, there's probably more coming there. We're going to find out what it, it's going to be more along the lines of another attempted big terrorist attack as opposed to a full blown insurgency. But, you know, that those are but those are it, it, something along those lines was is going to come in, in years, in, in months. In months following here, I, I months to come here, I wouldn't be surprised if we find ourselves writing up something along those lines, you know. Yeah, I mean, remember mid two thousand, the late two thousands. There was a lot of um, terrorist attacks on trains, attacks in cities um, in India. That sort of died down, at, particularly after Mumbai, um, after the international pressure on Pakistan dialed up. Um, then you've seen some individual attacks here and there that the Pakistanis, of course. Um, disavowed but you know i think that what's and i hate to bring this all back to afghanistan but the u.s withdrawal from afghanistan and the deal with the taliban is going to embolden the 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 pakistani state to probably take some more risks when it comes to india particularly in Kashmir, in and around Kashmir, and try and provoke uh, I, I, that, this is just how I feel things will happen. The India, the Pakistanis have to be emboldened the, to know that their policy of strategic death of supporting jihadist groups to further its foreign policy pays off in the long run because it, it worked against the United States. So why shouldn't it work in other against other countries as well? So now outside of India, of course, you have um, jihadi scene in Bangladesh. Um, Al Qaeda made some early forays into Bangladesh. You had the Ansar al Islam group, Ansarullah Bangla. You know they were they claimed a series of attacks that um, were meant to kill um, the so called blasphemers, atheists, bloggers, these types of people who were are deemed to be um, outside the bounds of Islam. It was part of a global campaign actually that included the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris. This was all part of their global rhetoric, which is the idea that Al Qaeda was going to avenge the Prophet Muhammad and anybody who had blasphemed him or or was an, a so-called apostate. Um, so they, and infidels, they, they did this as a part of a global campaign. They had a string of sort of small-scale attacks that were claimed in Bangladesh. But overall, you know, ISIS, of course, then established its own presence in Bangladesh, carving out from that and recruiting its own local jihadis and others into the scene. Um, they're going to have some presence there going forward. It's tough to get a handle on how extensive that is there, right, Bill? Yeah, it is. It's. I mean, look, you. You know, the same thing with with say uh, Burma, right? Myanmar. Well, right? Burma's like, where I was going next. So yeah, yeah. So that's good. <laughs> they're, they're, exactly. they're very similar in that they have a presence. They. Although I think I think we've seen more reported operations in Bangladesh than Burma, of course. Absolutely, more, yeah, absolutely. Claims, but, but yeah, we're not looking at say 
Afghanistan or Kashmir level violence in, in a place like Bangladesh. Um, it's really difficult, you know, and again, you had like, that's a whole long story, but the Pakistani state was, was sponsor of the jihadist uh, JUI uh, Bangladesh, right? Um, uh, Jaysh uh, Islami Bangladesh, right? Was, uh, was one group um, supported by the Pakistani state. How much of that, you know, the, the Bangladeshi government came down hard on them, and I believe it even executed the, the leader of its group um, several years ago. Um, but, you know, you still have remnants of these groups and it's really hard to see, you know, again, these are the ones that are really difficult to predict the, the South Asian countries because we just, we just don't see reporting on it like we used to. I don't know if it's because they've lost their presence is the fragmentation between, um, the JUIB and, and Al Qaeda and the Islamic state has it sort of carved up the pie in too many small pieces to make it not be meaningful or are they just sort of laying low or has this has the has the particularly bangladeshi state cracked down hard enough to make these groups uh irrelevant it's hard to say yeah so burma is a case where al-qaeda was agitating to do more yeah. we even had statements from aqip the current we're going to get to him the current leader of aqp Khaled batarfi and others were calling to try and you know spark the jihadi scene in burma i've seen very little evidence along yeah. those lines uh you know i'm sure there are people who are more of an expert on that than I am uh, in terms of looking at that. But I don't, I don't, nothing comes strong to mind right away to says that they've, they've established a major foothold there, even though that's a humanitarian crisis and a messy scene as it is, you know? Yeah. Largely aspirational there and, and, and propaganda oriented, but I've yet to see anything real materialize out of that. That's not to dismiss it as a threat. You certainly have um, an oppressed Muslim population there, population oppressed by the, the government. Um, it certainly is fodder for groups like Al Qaeda in the Islamic State to take advantage of, but we just really haven't seen that materialize at this time. All right, so let's go to Iran next up on our list. This is, of course, as you know, one of my favorite topics because you immediately, you immediately get into a conspiracy theory world in Washington and all the hackery around this issue that's been, that's been reported through the years. But we know this. I mean, the bottom line is that. Um, we know based on what an Al-Qaeda guy himself said about it, and what Al-Qaeda had said about it, and what the State Department and what the UN have said about it, that two major Al-Qaeda figures, two lieutenants, Diamond al-Zawahiri, part of his senior management team, Saif al-Adil and Abu Muhammad al-Mazri, are in Iran. And they were previously held in some form of detention there, but there was this exchange or reported exchange for an Iranian diplomat who was kidnapped by Al-Qaeda in 2015. And... Three of their comrades left Iran and were killed subsequently in Syria. They decided eventually to stay in Iran where they can uh, manage affairs. And according to multiple pieces of evidence, they have been playing a role in, in Zawahiri's international network and managing affairs there in Iran. Um, you know, this is the State Department in recent years has increased the bounty for information on them. It was one of those curious things. The State Department says, you know, we want information on their whereabouts, even though they know they're in Iran, everybody knows they're in Iran. And then it doesn't say, but we know they're in Iran. You know, why didn't they say that in about the reward for information offer they offered for them? But you can see from other reporting, everybody knows that they're in Iran, other State Department uh, sources. And also the UN Security Council, this expert panel that reports to them, we know they're in Iran. So there's, 
as far as we're concerned, they're still there. Both these guys are on the succession chain for Zawahiri. So if Zawahiri is killed or captured or incapacitated or coronavirus gets him, I guess this is one case in which we're rooting for COVID-19 uh, because apparently you know, the U.S. military isn't going to get him Eastern Afghanistan as far as we can tell right now, but maybe COVID will. Uh, you know, But Zawahiri, um, you know, if he perishes or is incapacitated, both these guys are on dock to replace him. I don't think they could replace him from inside Iran. They'd have to leave. It'd be too controversial in the Sunni jihadi scene for them to leave al-Qaeda's global network inside Iran, but they're playing a management role now. And we know there are multiple others inside Iran that have been identified through the years. So for example, in 2016, the Obama administration, the Treasury Department came out with a list of designations for three different senior al-Qaeda terrorists, all of whom were in Iran. The one who caught my attention right away there was Abu Hamza al-Khalidi. Um, this is a guy who we found was mentioned in the Bin Laden files as part of a new generation who was groomed to, to take over a leadership role. He's worked with other Al-Qaeda groups uh, and other Al-Qaeda affiliated groups, including the Pakistani Taliban. Um, and interestingly enough, the Obama administration identified him as the, the head of Al-Qaeda's military committee. Well, wow. And he was inside Iran leading their military affairs. And there were two others that were on that list as well who were, were playing this role. And then there was a series of other designations by the Obama administration and other official sources that identified a network that was part of an agreement between Al-Qaeda and Iran. There was a facilitation network initially headed by a guy known as Yassin al-Suri, who was originally he's originally from Kurdistan. Um, it's sort of dubious as to whether or not he's actually in Iran today. He may have moved to Syria or elsewhere. Um, but there's a whole string of these guys that we can identify. They were, they were running this key facilitation pipeline. And just recently in the country reports on terrorism, the State Department put out, they identified this pipeline is still going, that al-Qaeda still has this facilitation network inside Iran to this day. Um, you know, in that remarkable bill that after all these years, just as the Pakistani state never really had, was forced to or never decided to break with its jihadi clients and, and allies, that Iran, even though it's opposed to al-Qaeda in many ways, and the two are at loggerheads in Syria and Yemen and elsewhere in so many different ways, this relationship remains unbroken. Yeah, it's, you know, look, I think one of the biggest fallacies in our field is that Shia Iran and Sunni Al-Qaeda could never coexist together. And I think these designations and all of the other reporting and analysis out there shows that this is absolutely wrong. Uh, you know, if they were such enemies, how was these Al-Qaeda leaders who were designated, and it's not just one or two, it's many, how were they able to survive and serve as financial leaders, military leaders, uh, facilitators for people moving in inside and outside of Afghanistan and such and such? These are key members of Al-Qaeda's network. And unlike a place like Yemen or Afghanistan or pa even Pakistan, we went after, we conducted almost 400, over 400 drone strikes in Pakistan against Al-Qaeda and even did a raid against Osa to kill, kill Osama bin Laden. But you're not going to do those sort of things inside of Iran. So that makes Iran a, a key hub for its operations. And, um, you know, we're, we're not sending special operations teams there and we're not sending drones there. It's probably one of the, if not the most untouchable place on the planet for Al-Qaeda to operate, unless it's a place like China or Russia. And we see no indication of that. Yeah, I think you could see in the... Decisions made by Al Qaeda, by these Al Qaeda leaders, including Saif al Adel and Abu Muhammad al Masri, their comrades who were released from Iranian custody go to Syria, some of them do, and they get killed. They get droned uh, pretty quickly by the U.S., and yet they're alive because they decided to stay in Iran. 
Uh, you know, now I think if if Zawahiri were to perish and one of them were to take over, he'd, he'd have to leave Iran because Probably, you're not going to have yeah. the. You know, yeah, this is one area where it would become a perception problem and for the rank and file to say you're going to have the leader of Sunni Al Qaeda inside Iran, the overall emir. But you can you can see in these designations and other official reporting that this is, this entire apparatus is there, and. I you know when I just mentioned Abu Hamza Al Khalidi, one of these guys who was identified as the leader of Al Qaeda fighters in Afghanistan, who sort of graduates up the chain and becomes a somebody who's groomed to become this part of this new generation of leaders for Al Qaeda. Um, you know when the Church Department revealed he was in Iran, um, they said he was the head of the military committee, as I mentioned. And here let's do another epistemological question, and we're going to sprinkle these epistemological questions throughout this whole podcast. What what does Al Qaeda's committee structure look like to this day? Right, we haven't seen an assessment from the U.S. government publicly, at least, in quite some time. You know, the 2004 9/11 Commission report provided a, uh, an overview of the committees. They said, "Here are the committees, and here's the basic job functions for them." We've had mentions of the Al Qaeda committees and things that they've said publicly. And, and when ISIS was agitating against uh, Al Qaeda, there was some mention in Dabiq of different committees that were operating in South Asia, um, including a security committee. And so, some of this stuff comes up, but overall. Um, there's not been any official sort of analysis to say, here's what Al-Qaeda looks like, not just from Zawahiri and the guys underneath him who are their subordinates in the chain of command. And here's, the, here's what the, manage, the global management team of Al-Qaeda looks like. They refer to it as the general command. But here's, the, here's who's on the Shura Council. We've identified some of those guys through the years, but we don't have a, a full accounting of that. And then here's what the committee infrastructure on them looks like. We know Al-Qaeda's had this or a version of it since the late 1980s, and yet we haven't had an up-to-date analysis of this in quite some time. Right, Bill? Yeah, it's it's part of – it's a known unknown for us, right? Like we, we have no idea – um, other than getting scraps, bits and pieces, as you noted, from arguments from parts of the Bin Laden files, which are now, what, almost a decade old. Um, there's, And again, I, as you noted, I see very little effort by the U.S. government to, to e- explain to us what Al-Qaeda's committee structure looks like and what it means. Um, we know that Al-Qaeda has branches, right? And we know that branch leaders... Um, can pl- do play an important role. You're getting uh, ahead of me here, Bill. That was next on my list. Let's, 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 <laughs> <laughs> stay with the committee. Stay with the committee. Yeah, well, know. we'll stay with the committee then. Yeah, but, but right. they are, right? They're they're part of these. Right. We, we, be- we know that these leaders are part of the committee. So, But we only know this because it comes out in sort of in drips and drabs based right. on leaks, right. due, like you said, due to arguments, due to certain files leaking, things of that. Pieces I and designations. There are, there are yeah. pieces and designations, designations, that sort of thing, yeah. Pieces here and there. But there's never been this this full, robust accounting. Just as there hasn't been a robust accounting of what Al-Qaeda looks like in Afghanistan, there's not a full, robust accounting of what Al-Qaeda's management structure actually looks like. You know, yeah. you mentioned in, in the arguments, pieces come out. You know, I wrote up uh, a couple years ago, I wrote up these... Um, these handwritten letters that came out as part of the argument between Hayat Tahrir al-Sham in Syria and some of his critics in Syria. And these were letters showing the chain of succession under Zawahiri at the time. This is bef- this, These are old letters now. They're very dated. But it shows that there was a succession plan in place. If Zawahiri dies, next up on the list would be this guy and then this guy and this guy. And these members of the Shura Council signed off on it. So that gave us good intelligence on... Mm-hmm on who the Shura Council members were and what the succession line looked like. And some of those guys in the succession line, including Saif al-Adol and Abu Muhammad al-Mazri, are still alive to this day and in Iran, uh, interestingly enough. Um, but who else is on that now? Who's part of the succession chain now? Who's has that work? Who's on the Shura Council now? How has this been reconfigured, reorganized? All that stuff, you know, it's interesting how much of our field talks about this stuff at these basic 
questions about what this thing actually looks like. You know, very rarely are they asked, let alone answered. Yeah, and, and Tom, just one more piece too. I mean, we learned a lot about Al Qaeda's uh, who was on the committees um, and what the committee structures like with during the drone campaign in Pakistan and also in Yemen, right? The, yeah, good point. We yeah. would find it, but it was we'd find out after the fact. This guy would was a member of the Shura and also on the military council, and this guy, you know, that's how we would see things. But it was always after the fact. We never. We never have never had a real clear picture or haven't had a clear, real clear picture of what Al Qaeda looks like um, for quite some time. I decade longer. I mean, I, I'm just sort of guessing. I can't remember the last time looking at a very clear picture of what that looked like. Yeah, no, I, I can't either. It's a uh, it's been a quite quite some time. And it just it just speaks to the prop, the, the basic foundational knowledge problems at the heart of the what was formerly known as the global war on terror that the stuff is still not updated you know and and, and reported on regularly um you know i mean you know you, you talk about you know the media committee which is always such a big part of al-qaeda's operations for example um Khalid Sheikh Mohammed played a leading role in it mass by 9-11 you know other leading figures of an al-qaeda's organization have played a, a leading roles in Asahab, the you know the, the main central hub for al-qaeda media we know Asahab is operating, and they're not. They haven't been taken out of the game. Now they never developed uh, a media apparatus as prolific as ISIS. ISIS was always outpacing, has always outpaced them in terms of media production, even even when they took their their biggest lumps. Um, but what does that look like today? What does the Asahab media committee look like? Um, right. You know, in, in terms of who's running it, who's underneath them, underneath them. You know, how many people are they? How's it organized? I mean, you know, we talk about now we're gonna now we're gonna transition build the regional branches and that stuff. Sure. So. So we talk about um, you know this this hierarchy within Al Qaeda. Well, one of the things we know is that it's not limited to AFPAC, right? It's not you know these, these senior Al Qaeda members, guys who are part of the global management team. You know, there was, there was always this idea that the Al Qaeda core is in pa- in Pakistan or Afghanistan, and then everything else is sort of affiliates. But that was always a false dichotomy or assumption in the analysis. Um, you know, it was proven many times to be wrong in many different ways. I mean, you can point to guys like. Abu al-Karam Azri in Syria who was killed in 2017 in a drone strike. He was the top deputy Ayman al-Zawahiri at the time. You know, he was one of the top al-Qaeda leaders on the planet. He's in Syria, not in Pakistan or Afghanistan. You know, Nazar al-Wahashi was the emir of AQAP. We know he was the, the deputy emir of al-Qaeda and also at one point in time, it's so-called general manager. Um, you know, we, we can identify these guys through the years who were obviously bigwigs. This so-called core of Al-Qaeda was sort of this abstract concept that was never fully defined, but it generally referred to a geographic presence as opposed to a person, the actual personnel. It was never defined by the actual personnel, which is part of the problem here in defining Al-Qaeda that we've experienced in the U.S. government is that if you're not looking at the people and defining the organization by the people and the personnel, but instead letting these sort of concepts or these ideas sort of stick you're going to get it wrong, you know, and it's going to, it's not going to, not going to meet, meet the standards that you should have for the analytical standards that we all should have. Right, Bill? Yeah, I think I agree completely. I think this core paradigm that really came up during the Obama administration was used to justify. The, it, start, it started during the Bush administration, yep. but it became enshrined as sort of a dogma within yeah. analytic circles during the Obama administration because it was all driven by policy. Yeah, exactly. And that policy was let's defeat Al Qaeda so we can disengage from the region. And that that's really, I think, why it really gained hold and stuck with the Obama administration. Remember the Obama the Bush administration started the drone campaign. The Obama administration jacked it up, um, the drone campaign in Pakistan, right? And it targeted many key leaders of Al Qaeda, military leaders, members of the Shura. 
um, successive general managers and, you know, and whatnot. I got a list of uh, scores of these guys that were killed in the drone campaign. But, you know, like you said, it did. What about Nasser Waheshi? What about Drukdel? And um, what about, you know, what about all of these guys? Again, you get ahead of me with the Drukdel bond. You drop Drukdel and you get ahead of me. So, you know, these guys were part of, you know, they're if they're not core Al Qaeda members, then the 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 term has no meaning whatsoever. And they are they're, they, the 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 yeah. head of the Al Qaeda's branches, um, what people like to call affiliates. I prefer branches. Um, they are members. They are core members of Al Qaeda's core because they are managing, um, Al Qaeda's military, what Al Qaeda calls it's, this is what Al Qaeda defines them as their theaters, right? The, the, uh, right. Al Qaeda in North Africa, Al Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb, Al Qaeda East Africa, which primarily is Shabab and Al Qaeda in the Islamic, uh, I'm sorry, Indian, Indian subcontinent, the JNIM in, in West Africa. Um, these are all Al Qaeda's branches. Every, the leader of those, uh, without a doubt, in my mind, are key members of of Al Qaeda's core. I mean, we killed Asim Umar in in Afghanistan in in Helmand Province in 2019. His courier to to Ayman Al Zawahiri was killed alongside him. He's in direct communication with Zawahiri, and that's that shows the import of these individuals. Not Let's everyone gets to- in. Not everyone gets a, a courier to to. Um, to Al Qaeda's Amir. It's just not something they give away randomly. You've got to be someone if you have a direct line to to Zawahiri. So this get this speaks to the a, a fundamental issue here that we and you know we're gonna do another podcast, separate podcast dedicated just to the Iran Al Qaeda issue eventually. We've had, I've had a couple of people ask me for that even recently. We're gonna do that. Um, and we're gonna do a separate series of podcasts on the bin Laden files when we get to that. That takes a lot of planning and writing. We're working on it. Um, but you know, when we advocated for the release of the Bin Laden files, one of the one of the, the main reason really was because it got to this issue: of what does Al Qaeda look like, right? And there was this whole issue that um, the prevailing assumption at the time was that Osama, at the time of his death was Osama bin Laden was more of a figurehead than an actual day to day manager. He wasn't really overseeing operations so much as sort of a talking head who was sort of provide the ideological or um, personal glue, his personal touch was a glue for the, the network, but um, he wasn't basically this this guy who was actually overseeing things. Whoops, you know, the files were covered in the bottom show quite the opposite. You can see multiple sources now have, have, have said, have confirmed what we thought, which was that not only was he managing the operation, but he was even micromanaging it. You can see this in Mike Morell's book, The Great War. Uh, you can see another other reporting that was done. It was accurate. We've that that reporting is correct. That analysis is correct when you actually look at the files as we've been doing. Um, but that spoke, that, that's another major epistemological flaw here in understanding Al Qaeda. I, I keep coming back to this. Just think about that. As of 2011, the US government didn't even think that Osama bin Laden was running this thing, yeah. really, on a day to day basis. And he was, you know, that's a big problem. Um, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't just a political thing. I mean, I recently stumbled upon a quote from President Bush in 2006 saying that bin Laden's struggling to communicate, you know, with others abroad. And whoops, that wasn't right. We've got all sorts of evidence from his compound that he was communicating during that time. And that that paradigm stuck. Now, so now, listen, the U.S. government should have corrected this baseline. I think some parts of it did, but overall maybe didn't, you know, should have corrected this baseline analysis of how Al-Qaeda looks. But this leads to an obvious question, which I, I guarantee people aren't thinking about. 
If Bin Laden was in control of this thing, well, how much is Zawahiri in control of this thing? And how does his how does his operation look like? We have some evidence from the UN reporting others that the guys in Iran, Saifullah and Abu Muhammad Mazari, are playing a role in it. So we've got some evidence from Syria with all the problems there that he's encountered, that he has been able to exercise some level of managerial control, although there's obviously a major problem there for him, a major headache. We're going to get into that in a second again. Um, you can see that in other evidence globally. You see us Sahab. The media outfit constantly is referencing and glorifying the unity of Al Qaeda's branches with with Al Qaeda senior leadership. You know, when they put out, they have all these videos that come out from all the areas you talked about, Bill, and they put the media logos for these different shops for Shabab and for JNIM and AQIM and AQ and, and you know AQ senior leadership um, and AQAP. They show these media logos all side by side, emphasizing there is a global network here. Well, what does this look like, right? You mentioned Zawahiri's courier to Asim Omar. What does his actual managerial staff look like? How does he actually running this? What's the what are the nuts and bolts? How is he communicating? All these questions, you know. The, the bottom line was the U.S. government didn't really understand how Bin Laden was doing it. I think you have a good reason based on that historical precedent to assume they probably don't really have a good full full holistic accounting for how Zawahiri is doing it either. Yeah, and, and Tom, I, it, it's other than some select individuals um, within the intelligence community, I don't think the U.S. government really cares all that much. Um, about how Al-Qaeda is run at this point in time. And if they did, they wouldn't be pushing for this uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. And, you know, to go back to circle back to one point, you know, look, it, this isn't just a problem with the Obama administration with when talking about Al-Qaeda's core. Um, President Bush had a some type of chart at his desk and oh, this with is our photographs. Favorite. This is one of our favorite comparisons. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, and he would yeah. X off as soon as we would kill or capture one of these guys and apparently got down to 75%. And that was a reason for, you know, there to be such optimism that Al-Qaeda was defeated, right? And um, that went back all, you know, what, 2003, and then they did it again in 2004. I remember it went back years ago and, and wrote that up and, you know, to, to see, you know, how the Bush administration was looking at Al Qaeda and, and whether it was defeated, and they did the same type of thing. This had the same problems that the Obama administration had, and so 19 plus years after 9/11, we still don't understand what Al Qaeda looks like or how it operates. How there's important operatives that we have no idea who they are, where they are, and what their importance is to the organization. Um, these are problems that haven't haven't gone away in 19 years and i don't expect i think we're gonna have the same problems 19 years from now given the way given the history of this so you you look at that um you know this this is part of the common talking point that's stretched across two administrations now that al-qaeda is decimated right and we've always puzzled at this use of the word decimated because originally in its english language usage decimated meant you know decreased by 10 percent. you know basically you're down 10 percent which ain't so great, right? To say after all these years, you know, Al-Qaeda has been decimated in that regard wouldn't be so great. But of course, the, the English language usage has evolved and decimated is meant, to, is meant to convey something where they're basically, they're down to just a handful of guys and they're really in, uh, against it. But this is what we keep coming back to when, you, when we go through the history of the personnel of this stuff. What the, the implicit calculation there is that the starting number of Al-Qaeda senior leaders minus those who are killed or captured right? Or otherwise incapacitated for one reason or another. If you take those three out, the starting number, minus killed, minus captured, minus otherwise incapacitated, that means that the, the, the result is that their, their number is actually, you know, substantially reduced from what it was in 2001 or 2005 or whatever year you want to you want to go to. Um, the problem with that, as we've always said, that's, that, that's not the full numerator, right? The full numerator, right? The denominator is just the starting number. 
The full numerator is the starting number minus those killed, minus those captured, minus those incapacitated, plus those who were groomed from within the ranks to assume a new leadership position. You know, a guy like Qasem al-Ramey, who was recently killed in, in Yemen, is a good example of that. Khalid Batarfi. We got a whole dossier of guys, a whole Rolodex of guys you could point to like that. So you have these guys who were part of the original base, who were fighting, who were trained by al-Qaeda, and ultimately they're groomed to become new leaders. I mentioned Abu Hamza al-Khalidi in, in Iran, for example, as the head of the military commission. So you have to factor in those guys as replacements. Um, then you have new guys who are recruited post 9-11, um, for one reason or another, they're drawn to the jihad, you know, um, and some of those guys have the talent to become new leaders within Al-Qaeda so they can replace the fallen comrades. So you have the guys who are existing fighters who are groomed to become new leaders and you have new fighters who get in the system and lo and behold, they show leadership traits and they're groomed up the system. Um, plus then you have the, the, the guys who are poached from other allied jihadi groups, which is one of the dynamics we talked about, right? Where they poached from primarily the Pakistani groups, but others too, you know, they bring them in and they, and they, they replace them. So place them with these guys, they poach from other groups. So when you look at the whole numerator, the thing is that nobody can tell you what that actual number is, right? Nobody can actually tell you what does that equal, right? If you want to say that this thing is decimated, you, it's an actual calculation you have to make. You have to say starting number minus these variables, minus killed, captured, incapacitated, right? Plus guys who were groomed for new leadership positions who are already in the ranks, plus new guys who come along and are recruited and join in, plus the guys they poach, plus however else they're able to add human capital, and then divide that by the starting number. And what does that equal? And nobody can tell you, right? That's So when you actually talk about this, it's one of these things that's just really weird. People talk about this stuff and they make this assertion that Al-Qaeda's leadership ranks have been decimated. Yeah, we could point to dozens of guys who've been killed yeah. for years. Abs absolutely. But how many out of the total pool, right? Then they, nobody can tell you that. You know, and Tom, and and that pool has grown substantially since 9-11. I, look, we don't. That's the insurgency point, right? That's the insurgency exactly. Point. We don't yeah. know yeah. what the exact number of Al Qaeda was, but let's let's just. What did Al Qaeda look like on September tenth, two thousand and one, the day before nine eleven? You could argue they had several thousand fighters and leaders in Afghanistan, and then a smattering. You know, operating. Yeah, some some several, people even put it down. To, some people even put it down to several hundred, which is not. I don't think is anywhere accurate. I, I mean, yeah. Nine eleven commission report said that there are five to ten thousand guys went through Al Qaeda camps in Afghanistan between nineteen ninety six and September two thousand one. That's the starting base from which so, they're going to find new leaders, right? That they right. find guys to replace the fallen leaders, right? Yeah. So right, exactly. And then you know what was their presence in Yemen? What was their presence in North Africa? What was, sort of look, a smattering. Yeah, it sort was of a smattering, smattering elsewhere, right? Right. What do they right. have today? Where is Al Qaeda today? They have what four or five regional branches. How many Al Qaeda in Syria alone? Let's do a conservative estimate and call it five to ten thousand, right? Oh, Sir, I'll be, well, well, Syria is a nightmare. Let's not do Syria because Syria we're gonna we're gonna get to Syria. I, I that's that's the big. We've already did an well, episode on the problems in Syria. I don't know what yeah, the number no, no, is no, in Syria. Uh, at this point I'm just, I'm what, just what a mess. Yeah, run mess, through you know? just conservative yeah. number, right? Like let's say that number's two thousand. We're yeah. already at nine right. eleven numbers. Then you have Shabab. Yeah. What's their number? I don't know. They the, the U.S. Uh, the the commander. I think of, it's. A, I think it's at least several thousand. Yes, yeah, Africom thousand, said thousand. that they control. Right. A year ago, they said they control twenty five percent of the country. Yes, a lot yeah. of that's rural, but they do control towns and yeah. villages. Yeah, it has to be several thousand. What about in Mali? What about in, um, right. you know, in West Africa in general? What about in AQIM in North Africa? What about inside Yemen? We, look, in two times in the last decade, they overran large areas of southern Yemen. Um, right. Al-Qaeda itself admitted that it lost around 500 fighters in one of those years. 
And yet it wasn't defeated. It came back and took over large areas again. Number has to be in the thousands inside of Yemen. I would, you know, look, I would, you know, I'm giving you low ball numbers here. For I think those numbers I believe, are much I believe it, man. We've been talking about this I've for a seen. long time. I know it's low. It's, yeah. uh, this is definitely this is definitely the low, lower end of our estimates. Definitely. Yeah, and and you know, again, we then then you like you said the poaching and all that. It, it, the yeah. numbers of Al Qaeda fighters and leaders that it has to groom from had to have gone from several thousand to tens of thousands. So, yes, they've lost talent. But again, Zawahiri, how long has he been in this game? How long is his successor going to be have, have been in this game? Uh, you know, we've made this argument numerous times, and this is why we, you and I think these arguments are just highly, highly flawed, to put it mildly. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, one other factor we should add to my numerator there in my equation is defections to ISIS or other groups. You know, yes, defections. that's they've a good lost one. Some, they've, they've lost some defections. Of course they did. You know, that, that rankled them. That's, that's a, a, a hit for them, you know. <clears throat> Al Qaeda via uh, Jemmy Islami in um, in uh, Islami. I'm sorry, Jemmy Islami. It's been so long since I even talked about that group in Indonesia, and or, or its defections in Philippines. I mean, those were major theaters for for Al Qaeda in the 2000s, in which yeah, have it's, largely it's so, gone it's somewhat over. murky right now. That's another area where it's murky what Al Qaeda actually looks like after those defections. It, exactly it, right. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, like the Islamic yeah. State certainly has yeah. a more overt significant presence that we could pronounce as the right word um that we could detect at least um but yeah i mean those those are two very me to me very good examples or or iraq as well right al-qaeda in iraq was one of its most prolific branches where it really lost it to the islamic state but they're still jihadists they didn't go anywhere they just joined a different group yeah, well, I mean, you think you think about. It, I mean, that's another one of those places where we have to do a separate episode is on Southeast Asia. You know, definitely because yeah. I didn't. I've done some reporting on how the Islamic State grew there. I mean, the Abu Sayyaf group was lost. I mean, that yep. was you know, you, you know, the Abu Sayyaf group had a footprint, had a had a had a role in nine eleven. You know, in terms of guys coming through Southeast Asia for meetings and that kind of thing. And there's some ties there in terms of the personnel and everything and other major operations. And so, yeah, Al Qaeda lost that stuff. I what I I do wonder what what the reconfiguration here is going to look like in Southeast Asia going forward. I don't know, but let's go through these other countries real quick. Let's um, you know just to give people a sense. So you mentioned Iraq. You know, Al Qaeda had has lost Iraq. I mean, there's no operational footprint that we can see right now. It doesn't mean they don't have something they're trying to groom from out from underneath ISIS. There, there were always rumblings that they were trying to do that with some personnel, including some of Zarqawi's companions that were going to lead a new Al Qaeda effort. That didn't amount to much, or if anything, as far as we can tell. I don't see any evidence of an operational footprint there now. There is some evidence in the Kurdish mountains and elsewhere that they're there, uh, possibly as groups, but they don't have a big operational footprint as of this point. So they lost Iraq, right, Bill? That, yeah, lost that's Iraq. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I would call Iraq a major, or Al-Qaeda's biggest loss, um, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So now we'll go to Syria. What a mess. Um, you have Hurris al-Din, the Guardians of uh, the uh, Religion Organization. You have these other groups there. I mean, Hayat al Sham is still considered by the UN and US and Al-Qaeda affiliate. Obviously, there are big management problems there. I don't think we still know the whole story there. Um, you know, we're going to find out, I think, going forward more about that. There's definitely a conflict there. 
um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that that story has fully been written. I don't trust any of the the full accounts of that and what actually happened there. I think we're only seeing pieces of it. Yeah. Um, there, but there are other there. Are, but the problem with Syria is you have other groups like the Turkish Turkestan Islamic Party, which we know is still part of the Al Qaeda network, isn't you know it still announces itself. It's allied with Hayatir al-Sham on the one hand, and yet is still firmly in the al-Qaeda camp. You know, um, you have other groups, the Chechens, you have smaller Chechen and Uzbek groups. They're all part of the al-Qaeda fold. We don't know what the al-Qaeda chain of command looks like in Syria overall, right? I mean, I mentioned earlier the Asahab, you know, has those media logos for the different regional branches. So the way this works is al-Qaeda has regional emirs that are responsible for waging jihad in their regions. They're supposed to wage insurgencies against the local governance structure, lay the footprint for the Islamic Emirates. And then the goal in the long run, of course, this is far, far off at this point, not close to fruition. But the goal in the long run is to replace them with Islamic Emirates that join up in a caliphate, right? Well, we don't know who the regional branch leader is in Syria for al-Qaeda at this point. We don't know for sure. We know that Haris al-Din is in the fold. We know that its leadership are clearly al-Qaeda guys. Abu Muhammad al-Jalani, who leads HDS, he was the regional leader for al-Qaeda, the regional emir. He did have an overt uh, allegiance or bayat to Ayman al-Zawahiri. Um, there were rumblings that that was broken as part of his rebranding effort, although Ayman al-Zawahiri is suspiciously not disowned Jelani and has not um, formally said he's totally out of the camp. There are people who think he's still in the camp, but even though it's a strained relationship, um, you know, and there, so there's, again, I keep using the word murky. That situation is murky. We don't really know, but the bottom line is they have assets in Syria. Al-Qaeda has assets in Syria and they have assets in Turkey too, by the way. There's leadership. Remember, we've been yeah. tracking, you know, Guy Mohammed Islam Bouli, who's mentioned in the Bin Laden files, who's clearly a senior Al-Qaeda guy. There are other guys in Turkey. We don't know what the extent of the Al-Qaeda network looks in Turkey, right, Bill? We don't know. No, we don't. We don't. It's, we as you know. said, murky is the best way to put it there. Yeah, I'm going to keep saying that, unfortunately. Uh, so I guess I, I probably should use like, you got to get like a thesaurus up on Google right now as we're recording this train. Cloudy. Yeah, cloudy. Right, right. Yeah, cl- cloudy with a chance of jihad. So anyway. Uh, Fog of war. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. So let's quickly run through some of these other places, right? So um, the Sinai, Al-Qaeda, you know, ISIS has recently been bragging in Anaba, its weekly newsletter and other publications that they basically have cleaned Al-Qaeda's clock in the Sinai. Certainly, Al-Qaeda had multiple chips in the Sinai. Not clear at this point what they've got left in terms of the network. ISIS appears to us to be the Williot Sinai. The Sinai promise clears to be clears to be one of those areas where ISIS did actually um, surpass Al-Qaeda, apparently, for right now. And in mainland Egypt, um, you know, basically have some sort of... Um, you know, recruiting network of some sort, but it's not not a major pronounced presence at all. Certainly, nothing along the lines of major terrorist activity or insurgency at this point, right, Bill? Yeah. That, you know, by the way, of all the theaters, that's the one that actually surprised me the most, given um, how the Egyptian groups have always been um, in the Al Qaeda sphere. I've always well, you know, the, the most interesting part about that, that the most interesting part of that one, well, also because AQAP helps stand up the guys in yep. Sinai yeah, according to multiple right, sources. Right. And then, and then you had one of the interesting parts about that was Bruce Rydell uh, reported years ago that Mohammed Zamar, who helped recruit the 9-11 hijackers in Germany, um, that basically ISIS had secured his release from a Syrian prison and uh, that he actually went to the Sinai or met with the Sinai guys in some capacity to get them to woo them for all the Al-Qaeda causes. At that point, um, Al-Qaeda had Ansar Jerusalem, which was sort of a covert Al-Qaeda not, not so covert, I would say, but you yeah. know, Al Qaeda, un, un, unofficial Al Qaeda group, even though it was all, all, but all a name in the Sinai, and basically he, he helped get those guys to convert and, and throw in definitively with the ISIS cause. I don't know what the hell Mohammed Zamar is doing to these days. I mean, if he's still alive in the game, where is he? I mean, that's an interesting question, right? Yeah, sure. um, but that was an interesting report of how they did that. So, in anyway, Al Qaeda lost 
lost to Sinai. They don't have this. They have some presence there, but it's it's certainly been overshadowed by ISIS. You agree, right, Bill? Yeah, completely. Okay, so now Yemen, Yemen. There were you know ISIS did not overtake AQAP in Yemen. That didn't happen. Not even uh, AQAP, close. No, ISIS is there. They caused problems for AQAP, but um, AQAP is still the top dog in that theater. AKP, of course, carried out this attack in December at, at uh, Naval Air Station Pensacola with the sleeper agent, Mohammed al-Shamrani, the second lieutenant in the Saudi military. We talked about him on a pre- previous episode of the podcast. So they've still got some capacity to, t- to hit the West, uh, which is troubling after all these years. But their insurgency footprint in, in Yemen, you know, the UN says they got several thousand fighters. Again, we don't really know. They've, they've been able to leverage these local assets and local allies to keep regenerating their capacity. Uh, like Sheikh Zandani and his university, Al Aman University, and others that were sort of part of this whole network there in Yemen. It's a very uh, you know complicated story again, um, but AQAP is still very much in the game, and its senior leader now, Halid Batarfi. Uh, you and I have, have long said, or I've long said, and you, you, we've we've long identified these guys. They've got to be part of the Al Qaeda senior management chain. He's not just AQAP's leader; he's part of AQ's senior management, right, Bill? Yeah, you recognized him long, long ago uh, as being an up and comer. And as an aside, how Zindani is still breathing after at this point in time is beyond me. And I think it speaks volumes of the failures in our, in in this. And world. you know, the, the Saudis actually welcomed him for some meetings yeah. in Saudi Arabia, even even yeah. though defying international travel bans against him as a Disney terrorist. Um, you know, during this this multi sided war in Yemen, you know, uh, it's one of those problems where he, he still has legitimacy in the region. Um, and one of those things, one of those guys are able to leverage. He's a guy who was designated by the US government, I think in 2004. And yeah. they identified him as a as a one of the mentors for Osama bin Laden all the way back then. So this is the, and you can see in the bin Laden files that there's a reverence for him or respect for him, even when they disagree with him, you know, so yeah. um, another one of these parts of this. So let's go across the sea there to Somalia, you love Shabab. You've been talking about Shabab for a long time. <laughs> uh, the Shabab guys, they're very much in the game. They, you know, if, you, if you're you're looking at Afghanistan trending up, Pakistan, we don't know, uh, black box, but uh, reasons for suspicion. Syria trending down. They got multiple problems, but still a big footprint. Who knows where that's going to go? Um, support networks in Turkey. Who knows? Support networks in Iran. Then Yemen. You know, I, I don't want to say trending down, but they've clearly had their political project has definitely suffered setbacks. Yeah. Um, you know, so we'll keep an eye on that. There's an ebb and flow. Somalia trending up. What do you think, Bill? Absolutely. I think outside of uh, uh, the Taliban, that Shabab probably wages the most effective insurgency on the, the jihadist insurgency on the planet. I think they, they've they've maintained their unity and cohesion. The Islamic State in Somalia while it exists, is under a lot of pressure from Shabab. Shabab routinely goes down, goes out and calls the herd. They don't get a lot of Shabab's Omniad or its intelligence service is really, really good at what it does. Um, it uh, it suppresses any type of dissent within the organization. If someone even hints or or, or dreams about joining the Islamic State on the yacht pretty much goes after them. So, but, but they're also very, you know, obviously the Somali government, Somali military is practically non-existent. They're propped up by the African Union and the U.S. military. And um, Shabab has been able to wage it. I think Shabab really um, would might actually control more territory. I think they're kind of waiting for the African Union supposed to withdraw by, I think, the spring of next year, if I recall. I suspect Shabab is sort of in a waiting pattern, just like the Taliban is, and waiting for U.S. withdrawal, waiting for for international withdrawal before it makes its move. 
Yeah, and you know, the US obviously you can see there's pressure from the Defense Department to get out of Africa. There's like six, seven thousand, you know, service members across Africa helping stand up mostly there to help stand up local allies against the jihadis, and there's pressure to get those forces out. So that Shabab's not stupid. They know that's that's potentially on the table that they're not even have to worry about the US you know, standing up its main enemies, you know. Um, you know, we talked about there's this distinction between core, this phony distinction between the core and the affiliates that everybody uses or was very common or popular at one point in time. It still is in some circles. Um, yeah, I look at a guy like there's several guys in Shabab's senior chain of command who I suspect are probably Al Qaeda senior managers. You know, the Emir of Shabab, Abu Abeda, Ahmed Amar, uh, you know, Abu Abeda, you know, he, he comments on events far outside of Somalia, yeah. you know, he weighs in on events in Syria and Turkey's role and everything else uh, in all this and comments on this stuff. He seems to me like I wouldn't be surprised if he's on some sort of regional Shura council that's managing affairs for Al Qaeda globally. You know, uh, we've had hints that that such, such a council exists, you know, these guys were definitely part of Al Qaeda's. Um, I don't want to know if there's called core, but they were key facilitators. Um, key links to Al Qaeda's central general command, central leadership, however you want to put it, from the founding of Shabab and, and its predecessor, the Islamic courts. These guys were influential. So, you know, I don't, it's, it's, it is certainly not unreasonable to think that Shabab's current emir, and I believe their, Zubair, their past emir, was a key player within yeah. Shabab as well, or within Al Qaeda's um, global leadership as well. Yeah, and Sheikh Raya, the spokesman for uh, Shabab, he's openly, you know, you know, announcing their undying allegiance to Salahiri. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he plays some sort of management role also, and or at least some sort of advisory capacity. And there are probably other guys like that. Again, you know, the U.S. government's doing nothing to really explain any of this to anybody, uh, and there's really little incentive to do that. And Shabab is another one of those up and coming episodes of this podcast. We're going to have to do. We're going to have to do that eventually here. Um, so we'll move on from there from now because uh, just we don't want to go on and on and on about all this. But let's do quickly. Let's do AQIM and JNIM. You know, so Al Qaeda Islamic Maghreb. We we just recently talked about how um, Abdul Malik Drakdel Wadud had been killed in this French led operation with the U.S. assistance. The French government says that he was the second deputy of Zawahiri and part of the Al Qaeda senior management team, which says. In essence, that he was not just the emir of this regional branch of Al Qaeda and AQAM, but was actually part of the Al Qaeda global team. There are guys underneath him, um, including his potential successors. I don't think we have a named successor yet for him as we record this. We're still we haven't. An eye. No, no, we're keeping an eye out for that. Uh, but there are potential successors and guys there who we suspect, like Anabi, Yusuf Anabi, and others, who are probably part of the Al Qaeda global management team or advisory capacity in some regard too. Don't you think so, Bill? There, is that yeah, an ob- obvious angle of this, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I, I think it goes without saying. I mean, it is you shouldn't um, assume that there are key members in each of these branches that are um, not connected to the top leadership. They absolutely there, there are key nodes and it isn't just one guy. It wasn't just Drukdal. It wasn't just Zubair. It wasn't just Wuheishi in AQAP. Right. There, there are multiple individuals. It's a um, it, it's a a, a failsafe for Al Qaeda to keep its cohesiveness between its central command and its uh, global leadership and and the branches. Yeah, and of course, Al Qaeda AQAM stood up um, this you know wing that's primarily responsible for jihad in West Africa, the JNIM, which is the English translate translates into English into the Group for Support of Islam and Muslims, which is this benign sounding 
name. Doesn't that sound friendly? You know, they're just here to help. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if E.I. Gali, the head of JNIM, is also part of an AQ management team or on the advising. I mean, he's a guy who's definitely got the credentials for this. He's somebody who's well-trusted in, in Al-Qaeda circles, and they've groomed for a long time to do this. Um, you know, is he part of a, a senior management team? I, I would guess so. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, obviously, spe- we're obviously speculating, but you know, speculating, and, but yeah, and nobody's I'd put getting... good money on that one. Yeah. Now, all right. So they've got they've got, and they're they're operating at a pretty good pace in West Africa and Mali and the surrounding countries. We document that stuff all the time. Caleb, our Caleb Weiss, who writes for us, he does a lot of that stuff. You know, he's 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 sort of hot to try in West Africa. Again, we're gonna have him on in a future episode. Libya. Libya doesn't look so good at this point, right? I mean, but it's tough to say. It's another black box. We don't know. They've been operating. AQAM, we know, was operating through cutouts and, and front organizations through the years. So who knows, right? Yeah. I, I Look, both the Islamic State and, and Al-Qaeda's operations there have taken a hit. But it's hard to say where they are exactly. Look, they didn't, they, all of these guys certainly didn't die um, They uh, or, or captured. I just think what we've seen is uh, them go underground for a bit and to see where things shake out in Libya. I think that's what's happening. But again, it's any, anyone's guess. I think it's a pretty good sketch of Al Qaeda in 2020, and it is a sketch. I mean, we're you know well over an hour into this episode. We could you and I could go on for many more hours on this stuff. But what we'll do is we'll break out some of the parts that we talked about today in separate pieces and deal with them in more depth. I think like you know dealing with AQAM and JNIM, we'll have Caleb on to talk about that stuff and his research, and we'll connect that to the historical work you and I have done on that. We'll do Shabab. We'll do. Or we're gonna end up doing Syria again. You know that. And we yeah, also have, have to, to happen. We also have to do an ISIS roundup too, and we and we've gotten requests. I've teased this in the past and put this on the list of the the, the number of episodes we're going to get to. I promise. One of uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda's competition and what that looks like and what ISIS looks like today. These are all topics we're going to cover in future episodes, right, Bill? Yep, that absolutely. Now, Bill, you know one of the things that came up online before we leave today. Um, I sent you this link, this report on a website I, I hadn't even seen. I don't even know much about this website, but it was, it was talking about the Casio F91W watch, which is the watch that's used by Al-Qaeda. Now, I, I first came across this this model in my research in the Guantanamo detainees years ago because um, one of the indications that somebody who traveled to Afghanistan for jihad was they were wearing this watch. And apparently, it's it's got a good timer that's used for improvised explosive devices and that sort of thing. Um, it, it's a very cheap looking digital watch. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't appreciate the aesthetic of it whatsoever, but I could see, I could see that a lot of jihadis wear this thing. And I saw this, this report, what was the website I sent you a link to? I don't even know. I didn't even, some- you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I have the title of the article. Um, it is, uh, how did the Casio F91W become a terrorist icon? Unfortunately, I, I seem to have lost the link to that. Uh, great show prep, Bill. Um, yeah, so that I, look, uh, just Google that name. You'll come across that article, and you know, look, I suspect, I suggest you all drop what you're doing and read it because, look, everyone knows that I have a little thing for the uh, Chechen style, right? Um, well, I mean, let's look. Let's face it. Who doesn't you, love you, Ibn you, Kitab? Yeah, you love you love the Islamic Caucasus Emirates aesthetic. You love their. Oh, their you merch. love it. Wait, look, that you love it. You, you love it. it. No, not, not you love it. You no, love it. Not me. Listen, you, yeah, you love it. You know, Tom, who doesn't love that that Ushanka hat with with the the, the scattering of eclectic camouflage, Kitab's beret. That's it's so smart. 
or 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 Imrek Kazka's Vogue logo T-shirts. It, it definitely gave him a snazzy word short flat uh, sword adorned flags. You gotta love those things, Man. Tom. Listen, listen does. you go on about it. You've given this way too much thought. Listen, oh, to this. No, Tom. Really, admit it. Really. Everyone loves it, and if you don't, listen. Listen, we're filming I'm this, and I can see I can see a closet in the background when we're filming this. <laughs> I'm seeing on Zoom, and I'm wondering if you open that puppy, what's in there? And now you're talking about this stuff. That's what I'm wondering. Look, you know, if you can't appreciate that, you probably go to the jihadi fashion dorks like Johnny Walker Lind or Jihadi Jack. Those guys got no style and no flair, and, uh, and then you're probably shopping at Kmart for your clothes. So let's just face it. Um, and by the way, jihad, uh, the Chechen jihadi fashion is so chic. That it's in perhaps one of the best movies in the that discusses the global war on terror, and I know Tom is one of your favorite movies as well. Teen America, World Police. Their their top jihadists in that is all Chechen. I, I could I couldn't believe when the, they really they really whoever they did the research it. for that whoever did the research for that really did keen hone in on the the Chechen stuff. It's amazing, you know. Yeah. So look now you're all aware of my bizarre and call it sick. Um, fetishization of of the Chechen jihadi style. Well, Tom, Tom's got a thing about watches here. It's it's very disturbing, folks. Um, I wish I had recorded some of these. I don't like cheap watches. I don't like the look of them. I just yeah. don't. And the jihadi. Tom actually them. will. Tom will size you up based on your watch. Just so you know. So if you're going to be in Tom's presence, you better understand what Tom's watches are all about. So, um, Tom, tell us about how you came across the F91W, that beautiful Casio watch, which, by the way, is one's on the mail in the mail on the way to you. I know how much you love them, so I had to send you one. Yeah, you're gonna get a you're gonna get a video of me smashing that thing because it's just so Uh, cheap. Come on, hey, oh, you know, I mean, look, this it's such a great watch, Tom. I mean, look. It's Jihadi's love it. Jihadi's love it. You know what? You know what's funny is I I came up on this. What's funny (laughs) about it is this cheap watch. This this. Piece of shit watch that the Jihadis love. $12.63, including tax and shipping, by the way. That the Jihadis love. Apparently, this thing, the timing mechanism on it is so good that they can use it for explosives over and over again. So, apparently, what it was, the reason why they ultimately used this watch originally was in these training camps in Afghanistan. It was something they could use to set up a timer for an explosive device, you know? And by the way, the explosive devices they were using this thing or timer were, they weren't necessarily used for international terrorist attacks, although they could be. There was for insurgency, waging guerrilla warfare, yeah. which if you listen to this episode here and what we talked about in Al-Qaeda 2020, part, a large part of what we're talking about is not necessarily their capacity to hit the West. We're going to deal with that again, of course, in the future, um, but really about their insurgency footprint and the fact that these guys were ultimately, they were insurgents. And the F9, F91W Casio watch was you know, something they used for their their training for to build these bombs. Um, and as I mentioned, I, I originally I was doing this research into Guantanamo, and it's one of the things that's throughout the files. And so years ago, when I when they kept referencing this this watch, this make and model of watch, I had to look it up, and I was like, "Geez, come on, guys, really? This is this is the best you can do in terms of aesthetics here for a watch." And then it turns out that Bin Laden even wore one in one of his you know uh, images. And I'm like, "Come on, man, you got to have something that's a little little better looking than this thing, you know?" It that watch is actually the only piece of branded um, gear. That Bin Laden was ever seen with, other really? than like an AK or something really? like that. I didn't know that. Yeah, wow. That's it. That's wow. that article discussed that. I thought that was. Oh, that's right. It's in that article. Yeah. That, yeah, 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 it's, yeah. It's it's you know you're never gonna catch the guy in Nike, but he'll wear the Casio F91W. Yeah. Well, he had poor choices in that regard then too. <laughs> everything else. 
All right. Well, now, well, now you know. Now you know one of my dark secrets, thanks to Bill, which is I have a I have an anti watch fetish. You know, there's certain watches I just don't like the making models of them at all, and this is one of those ones that's just sort of just so cheap looking. You know. Yeah. Well, so Tom, I got one more question about this. So when Baghdadi yeah. um, declared himself caliph in that video. Um, yeah, so that, that you know, watch was not a Rolex. I mean, you can see yeah. some reporting people were questioning right well, away, is this thing a Rolex? No, Baghdadi's yeah. not wearing a Rolex. I mean, the watch wasn't <laughs> terrible, but it wasn't a Rolex, you know? I mean, don't pa- try and pass this thing off as a Rolex to me. I mean, I saw some of the people questioning that, and I was like, come on, you don't know your what watches. Is, when, when, we first, when that video first came out, the first thing Tom says to me is, did you see that watch that he was wearing? I swear to you, that was the first thing that. You know who has a watch fetish uh, too is uh, Sheikh Mohazni in Syria. That guy's always wearing different making models of watches. You know. No, um, no. Do you like his watches? Uh, I mean, some of them are okay. You know. I mean, you know, see, he, he's, a big, he's a big fan of ours. So if he's listening to this, you know, or has somebody translated for him, he can get a kick out of that. You know, he doesn't. Well, Tom, just keep this in mind. Mohazni will never send you a watch, but I will. Yeah. Well, on that note. Any event, so now you got to look into some of the more bizarre aspects of the Long War Journal and our reporting on this through the years. Yes, we I do track jihadi watches, and, and as disturbing as Bill's uh, love affair with the Chechen jihadi scenes uh, aesthetic is, you can now know something about mine and my own distaste for certain things. Um, in any event, you know, we'll conclude on that note. Uh, so thank you again, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. And we'll see you again next week.